France is undergoing a kind of renaissance of late, if you've been keeping track of the news in Europe. This next summer might be the place, France might be the place to be. I'm not so sure whether I would want to be there um, with all that's going on. If you've kept track of uh, next summer, for example, it's a big anniversary date for the Normandy invasion, a celebration of French liberation. Not long after that, what event is going to take place in and around the environs of Paris in the summer? The Olympics, the 2024 Olympics, the 23rd Summer Olympics. And then later, they finally set the date in, the, in December, on December the 8th, Notre Dame Cathedral is set to reopen, and they think they're on schedule. There's a sense of hopefulness and renewal and renaissance in France, I'm told. And that future hopefulness is built on the history of past glory. Stop and think about it. The big date is because it is the 80th anniversary of the invasion of Normandy and the beginning of the liberation of France. Think about Notre Dame Cathedral. After four years, because of its destructive fire, it's having been rebuilt. But yes, be far beyond that, Notre Dame Cathedral is almost a thousand years old, over 960 years old, built on the glories of the past. And of course, the Olympiad celebrates almost 2,900 years of sports history. Not unbroken, but it goes back a long way. Well, you know, future hopefulness is often that way. It's built on the certainty of the past, and it's the same for us as Christian believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's built on the certainty of God's past faithfulness and His promise of future blessing. You know the words of Thomas Chisholm that we sing, Great is thy what? Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And then it closes in the last stanza. Strength for today and bright hope for what? For tomorrow. Blessings are mine with 10,000 beside. This describes to some degree what we're talking about this morning. We look at the Sermon on the Mount. This is the 39th message in our series on Jesus' imperatives. We're closing in on a year and looking in those imperatives in the, in the New Testament. And it's the same with the Sermon on the Mount, the imperatives that we look at today. His new message for the new covenant was built on God's past promises from the old covenant. He brought bright hope, new hope, for tomorrow by fulfilling, completing, and not abolishing the law and the prophets. When we look at the background and the context of this passage from Matthew, the seventh chapter today, we know that the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was for Jesus to establish his kingdom ethic for behavior and identity in the new covenant. And he lays down the ground rules for how we are to live in his coming kingdom. Today's imperatives from the seventh chapter establish a deeper understanding 
of God's relationship with us and our relationship with Him. And in this, Jesus invites us, He beckons us to know God in a different way, to know Him and to rely on Him and to trust on Him as our Heavenly Father. And He casts a vision for the future. He casts a vision for our purpose and for what He wants us to be doing in God's kingdom. Would you stand together with me as we read from Matthew, the seventh chapter? If you're following the outline that I passed out, I mislabeled it as the Beatitudes. It's not the Beatitudes. (laughs) Beginning in Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse number seven. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if, his, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? May God bless the reading of his word as we take our seats. There's a parallel passage to this, as there are many parts of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Luke, and it's found in Luke, the 11th chapter. And the first couple of verses are virtually identical, but verses 9 through 11 of Matthew are changed by Luke. Instead of speaking about the bread and the stone, he speaks about an egg and a scorpion, and he reverses the order. He puts the fish and the snake first. So that's one difference. And then another significant point of departure is that instead of good gifts, he defines more specifically what the good gift of God is, and it is the Holy Spirit. And so the latter part of the parallel passage reads this way. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This, in Luke's context, and it's important for us to understand when we look at Matthew, it follows Jesus' instructions after the disciples have asked Him to teach them how to do what? How to pray. And so He does. He teaches them how to pray as he does in the Sermon on the Mount to the crowd and the disciples that are gathered on that hillside. And he teaches them what we call the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And then after that, before this parallel passage, there is a parable that he teaches. He teaches about persistence in prayer. You might remember it's a story about the man who he says, suppose that you are a man and you have a neighbor that comes and visits you and it's in the middle of the night and you need to feed him and you don't have bread. And you go to your neighbor and you ask your neighbor and the neighbor will not give you bread. He says, no, the door is closed. It's locked. I've gone to bed with my family. But if you persist, not because you're his neighbor, not because you're his friend, but because you persist, he will answer. And so very clearly in Luke's gospel, the context for what Jesus is saying, perhaps on another occasion, is persistence in prayer. In the Sermon on the Mount, the context is different. You will know what he has done by this point. He has given the Beatitudes, and then he has talked about being 
perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And leading up to that, he gives six antitheses where he further explains what the law means in six situations. And then leading up to the seventh chapter, he has given us seven illustrations of what it means to be like how God created us, to be perfect as the Father is perfect. You remember that he has talked about not doing certain things, not performing your pious acts in public to demonstrate them before people, or you will receive no reward. Not serving the world, not serving mammon, but serving God. Not worrying about daily provisions, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear, because the Heavenly Father will take care of those. Trust God. Not judging others unfairly, but being reminded humbly that we must admit our own faults first. And then not treating holy things with contempt, not throwing them before dogs, not casting them before pigs, lest they trample them under their feet and then turn and tear us to pieces. And so then we come to this passage about asking, seeking, and knocking. And it precedes then the summary statement, the capstone statement for the whole sermon where Jesus then summarizes the kingdom ethic with a golden rule. He summarizes the law and the prophets, he says, with treating others as we wish to be treated. And then he applies all of this, of course, and how we will relate to one another. So that's the context for the passage. You know, as you read commentators about this, at least when I have, I see some problems with interpretation, in my humble opinion. Some interpretations, I think, are just flat out wrong, and some are misleading and distracting. And I think this is important to consider when we look at what Jesus is saying here. Some interpretations of this passage are just absolutely wrong. There are some that would say that these instructions and promises are for Christians only. The rationale is that, and if you look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel, it says, and Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down, and then he had escaped the crowds. His disciples come to him and he begins to teach them, saying, and he gives the Beatitudes. How many of the disciples? We don't know. Probably more than just the twelve. But they would say, some would argue, well, this is just for his disciples. They would suggest that the Father listens only to those who follow his son, Jesus. Some would even refer to passages like Proverb, the 15th chapter, verse number 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. And I think they would misapply that passage and say that God doesn't hear the prayers of the heathen or the pagans or the unbelievers. There's some problems, in my opinion, with that interpretation. For in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus suggests that the father that we know is also the father of humankind. He, he says he causes the sun to what rise on the evil and the good. And he sends his reign upon the righteous and the unrighteous. And in verse number eight, right here, he says, after he then explains, ask, seek, and knock, he says, everyone, everyone who asks, receives. Does God hear the prayers of non-believers? I, I agree that 
God has a special relationship with his followers, with his believers. And he listens very closely and intently to every word of prayer that we have lifted today in this worship service. When we go home and we follow his instructions to go into our room and close the door and pray to our Father who is unseen, he listens intimately and closely to us, yes. But God is about redeeming lost people as well. And he wants to draw the wicked from afar and draw them close to him. He wants to draw them out of their wickedness. And how else can he do that if he does not listen to the prayers of unbelievers? I think this is a false interpretation. There's another wrong interpretation, and it's the prosperity gospel. The rationale is that God will grant whatever you wish if you will only truly believe and obey him. Healing and riches can be yours if you will demonstrate your piety and publicly confess and publicly talk about what God has done in your life. Now, true, when God does something in our lives by way of healing or causing us to thrive, we should testify. We should give him glory and honor for it. But there's a problem with this approach as as I have described it. You see, the passage does not say, whatsoever you ask, you will receive. Whatsoever you seek, you will find. Whatsoever you won't open will be open for you. It's a transactional way of looking at the gospel. It's exactly like pagan religion. That's what the pagans did. The pagans came before their gods in their pagan temples, and they asked the priests then to beseech the gods, if I will do this for you, you will do this for me. You see, this approach to the gospel is the epitome of a public show of piety, which Jesus warns against. He said, when we do this and we make a public demonstration of our piety like that, you have had your reward in full. I tell you the truth, he says. I think it's a false interpretation of this passage. There's some interpretations that detract from what I think are the main points of the message. One of those, and well-meaning commentators, and very studious folk, a lot of them brighter, much brighter than I, sometimes will say that everything in the Sermon on the Mount has to fit logically and coherently in a structured pattern. Everything needs to fit and flow from one point to the other. After all, Jesus was logical. There's a problem with that, I think, though. You see, when you, when you look at this passage, he says, do not do this, do not do this, do not do it seven times, and then all of a sudden there seems to be this gear shift where out of the clear blue, he says, ask, seek, and knock. Well, that can't be. It's, it's got to fit somewhere else, you see, logically. The problem with this approach is, The Sermon on the Mount is not an elaborate theological treatise, in my opinion. It's not something that, oh, though we study it, that's true. It's not to be dissected and systematized. He's gathered his disciples on the mountainside out there, and he is talking to them in simple and obvious terms. He's using plain talk with his disciples, giving them practical advice how to live in the kingdom, giving them practical advice how to obey God, how to fulfill the law and the prophets. Usually when Jesus delved more deeply into spiritual truth, not always, but usually when he did, what did he use? He often used parables. And this is not a parabolic statement. It's not a metaphorical statement here. So I have a a problem with people that try to pick this apart and find some kind of deeper meaning and pattern that it's got to fit into. When we do that, 
Sometimes it causes strained interpretations. And every commentator will come up with a different view about what Jesus is saying based on personal opinion or maybe theological bias. And sometimes what happens is we take our system of theology and we load it on top of what Jesus is saying. Because you see, it's got to fit our logical pattern. The problem with this is sometimes the Word of God does not fit human logic. I think in this instance, many interpretations, I think, rather strain what Jesus is saying. Some would say, well, you see what he's saying is you ask, seek, and knock for strength to obey. Because the ethic that Jesus is teaching here is so hard to follow, you see. In fact, Jesus said, what I tell you to do is really not that hard to do. <laughs> Some would say, well, we ask and seek and we knock for wisdom so that we will know how to not to judge people inappropriately, so that we will know to whom we should not cast our pearls, the dogs and the pigs. Some would say, well, this is about social insight, how to deal properly with mammon, which he has spoken about before, and how to deal with human relationships. Some would say we ask for and seek for and knock for the grace to be able to keep the golden rule so that we can share the good things that God has given with us to others. The problem is, you see, I've just described four widely varied and different interpretations of the passage. I think it's very simple. There's a very simple message I think there's another problem, problematic interpretation, and that is when people take, it's, it's good for us to do exegetical study and to look at the verbs and to look at the tenses and all of that, and you know, I do that sometimes. We all do in our Bible study. But some would say this is all about prayer. It's all about prayer that you see asking is praying, seeking is praying, and knocking is praying, and there's an increasing intensity that focuses on a singular prayer request. We have something that we're asking God for, and so we first simply ask, ask God, and then what we do about that prayer request is we seek prayerfully searching the Scripture, and we should do that, yes, to confirm that what we're asking is fitting, and then we knock confidently then saying, okay, God, I know this is what you want to do, then please give it to me. The problem with that is asking means asking. <laughs> seeking means seeking. Knocking means knocking. This is not a metaphorical passage where Jesus, I think, is substituting other words for prayer. I think it means this. We ask for something that we believe we need. We petition God in prayer. And then what we do is we seek and it may be that thing or it may be something else. We seek also God's direction in our life. And, and we knock. We knock and we ask for the Lord to open a door to go through because he's calling us to the other side. Jesus' point, I think, in this passage is basically this. When we have needs, when we want direction, we want to know where to go and what to do. We need to stay in close communion with God, actively engaged with Him in dynamic prayer, talking with Him dynamically, poised to act. You see, it's not enough to pray. It's not enough to pray. We need to pray, but we need to be willing to act. We need to be prepared to go out and to seek as He guides us and to knock on doors in the real world. And sometimes, friends, that means literally knock, knocking on oaken doors. I think there's a third problematic interpretation, and that is some would say this is about persistence in prayer. 
The rationale is, here it is, the Greek present imperative is used for each verb, which means keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, and, and that's what it means, that's true. But most commentators suggest that this implies that God's going to wait until we keep on and keep on and keep on. And he will respond only when we keep persistently at it. Now, I had said earlier that the Lucan passage makes this point. Jesus wants us to be persistent in prayer. Luke, the 11th chapter, the parable about the persistent neighbor. He wants us to be persistent in prayer. Luke, the 18th chapter, seven chapters later, he then, in order to encourage his disciples not to give up, he says, you need to be persistent in prayer like that widow before the judge. So Jesus wants us to be persistent in prayer, but my point is this, I don't think that's the intention of this passage. This passage is different. Those passages were intended to encourage disciples not to lose hope, not to give up. And you notice that in both of those passages, he used parables to teach the deeper truth. I think we have to be very careful that we don't take a parallel passage and superimpose the context on Matthew, the seventh chapter. I think here Jesus does not mean necessarily that we always have to be persistent on this point, and God's not going to answer us unless we persist. And we per Sometimes God answers immediately. Here Jesus simply means this. We must remain actively engaged. Yes, we should keep on praying. We should keep on seeking. We should keep on knocking as we walk along with Him along life's narrow way. It is an intimate communication I think there are three main points of the passage that I'd like for us to look at in a couple of applications. I think the first of those that Jesus is telling us is very simple. God is our Father. God is our Father who wants to give us good things. We're God's children, and He loves us, and He cares for us. He's our beneficent Heavenly Father. James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from our Father, the Father of lights. You see, he acts more graciously than we could ever imagine a human father would. He loves us. For those of us who have had the experience, and most of us had, of having good fathers, he's saying, no matter how good your earthly father is, your father in heaven is even better. No, he's the best. But not everyone has had a good father. Some people have, in fact, had evil fathers. And I think he's reminding us God is nothing like that. He's not an abusive father who delights in withholding things from us. He is not an authoritarian, dictatorial father who imposes his will on us. He gives us a choice. He's not a divine trickster that switch, baits and switches with us. No, he is a loving, caring father who always responds in loving kindness. Whenever we ask and seek and knock, he lovingly listens and he responds with kindness. It's not always exactly what we ask for. It's not always exactly what we seek, and it's not always exactly what we expect to be open to us. But what we can be sure of is this. What He gives us is the very best. So one thing I think that He's saying here is, God's your Father, brothers and sisters, and He loves you and He cares for you and He listens. Secondly, God treats us in this passage as members of God's family. 
And he invites us to enter into a new and deeper relationship with God than heretofore had been known. To relate to God and to rely on God as our Heavenly Father. Though Father is used occasionally in the Old Testament, it is not prominent. We know this. Yes, they understood that he was Father Creator. But Jesus... In the New Covenant, and here at the very beginning of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount that defines the ethic of the New Covenant, he emphasizes over and over and over 17 times the fatherhood of God. He invites us to enter into a relationship in a new way with God as Father. I think there's a third main point, and that is that Jesus involves us in contributing to God's kingdom purpose. To venture forth... As we go forth in life, every moment of the day, walking along the narrow narrow path of life, asking and seeking and knocking, walking with Him and pushing the boundaries of opportunity to fulfill our purpose as He created us to be, to know and to do His will and to participate with Him in the kingdom of God to accomplish His kingdom purposes. Let me make two applications of those three points. First, we ask and we seek and we knock to enter God's family. And then secondly, we ask and we seek and we knock to know and to do God's will. First, we ask and we seek and we knock to enter God's family. We ask and we will know that God exists. Some are skeptics and they doubt the existence of God the Father. I pray that you're not one of those. If you're watching this morning, I hope you're not. But if you are, there there is hope in His message. You see, because when a skeptic then asks God with an open mind and willingness to listen, to reveal himself, he will answer. God uses many ways to do this for inquiring minds, asking minds. Sometimes it's witnessing the glory of creation. Sometimes it's a word from Scripture. Sometimes it is a spirit of truth that convicts the heart and the soul. Sometimes it's a witness of God's people that speak about their testimony to others. But the most certain way of knowing is to ask the Lord Jesus Christ. If we ask Him, if we call upon the name of the Lord, and we ask Jesus, He will reveal the Father to us. No one has seen God at any time, John tells us. But the only begotten, that is, Jesus Christ, the Son, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Paul tells the Corinthians, For God who said, Let light shine in the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If we ask Jesus to reveal God to us, he will. If a person is an unbeliever and he or she seeks, they will find God. Finding God goes beyond knowing about him. Finding God knows it goes beyond simply intellectual capacity. It is coming alongside him on the path of life and walking and asking and seeking and knocking life's narrow path. And the Scripture promises in the Old Covenant that even when we go astray, this morning, if you do not know God, the promise from Isaiah is this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the one who is hostile to God forsake his or her way and the unrighteous person his or her thoughts, and let him or her return to the Lord. Jeremiah tells us, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. The challenge is this, 
walking along the path in the world today, there's only one way to find and to know God. It's not the broad way of the world, and he talks about this just a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a broad way that leads to destruction, but there is a small gate and there's a narrow road that leads to life. And Jesus has said, I am that way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. One who does not know God can ask and, can see, and will seek, and the Lord will reveal him. And then they must knock to enter God's home. Jesus tells us that he has gone to prepare a place for us in the Father's house. He has also said that he is the door. He is the entryway into the kingdom of God. He is the entryway into God's house. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out, and he will find meat for all his needs. The divine irony is this, in the asking and the seeking and the knocking, is that Jesus is already there. Jesus is not only the door, but he is standing there at the door of your heart today. And if you do not know him and he is revealed to you and you seek him and the Lord reveals him to you, he then beckons you. He knocks at the door and he invites, he asks to be invited in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then I will come in to him and I will dine with him and he will dine with me. The solution is very simple. When a person who does not know God comes to know after seeking through Jesus Christ the Father, the answer is very simple. Open the door and let him in. There's a second application, and that is asking and seeking and knocking to know and to do God's will. If we ask, he will provide all of our needs personally, any need that we have that he knows about, he will provide. If we ask as ministers, and we are all ministers of the gospel that believe in Christ, if we ask, he will provide whatever need we have for the ministry of the gospel. If we as a church, as Gambrel Street Baptist Church, ask, he will provide whatever needs that we have to accomplish the mission he has given us. And we know that there are conditions on this. It's not just whatever we want. Oh, we can ask for whatever we want, but we don't necessarily get what we want, and we know it. We must ask according to what? His will. We must be abiding in Him. We must believe without doubting. And we must ask in Jesus' name so that the Father will be glorified. If we do these things, if we ask truly seeking His will, if we ask and we're walking along with Him and abiding with Him, if we ask and we, we believe in the depths of our being and our heart that what we ask will be, it's because it's according to God's will, and we ask for Jesus to provide it in His name, He will glorify the Father by giving us what we need. So what are we as Gamble Street Baptist Church asking for? If you were listening to Ken's prayer, he touched about, upon all of those things in his pastoral prayer. We have been asking for workers for the harvest because we know that God wants to send workers into his field. We have been asking for him to give us a very clear vision to know where we're going next year and what he wants us to do in ministry. And he will do that. 
We have been asking then that he provide the resources, human resources and financial resources that are necessary to meet the mission need. And we believe that he will do it. We believe that with all of our heart. What do we do in seeking to do God's will? Seek and we will find our purpose in his kingdom. We know what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry about all these things. Don't worry about what you eat, what what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. For the pagans run after all these things. But your father knows that you need them before you even ask. But, and you can fill in the blank, but seek first the what? The kingdom of heaven. Seek first his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you. You see, we're his servants in his kingdom. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about serving him. Jesus' meaning is, if we seek to do the will of the Father as Jesus himself did, he will then show us the way. The meaning is that if we don't worry about constantly, corrosively, everyday needs, if we trust Him and turn it over to Him, He will provide. The meaning is that we do not seek to please men, but as Jesus said in John the fifth chapter, He sought and He seeks to honor God, and if we do, He will show us how. The meaning is that if we seek to behave according to the ethic in the Sermon on the Mount, we will know how to live. If we seek the kingdom of God, it means that we work together not just with other Baptist churches, but we work with the the global family of Christ. It's not just about Gambrel. It's not just about Baptist churches. It's about kingdom purpose churches. It's about not being united with them necessarily, certainly not being in uniformity with them, but working together without a spirit of divisiveness in a unified cooperative way for the kingdom of God. It means that we remember that what we are seeking here and now, the request that we lay on the altar of God today, the things that we ask for, that we seek for, that we knock and ask for the Lord to open, that those things that have temporal importance today have an eternal consequence. You see, these will echo down through the ages long past the time that we are gone. The kingdom of God is eternal. If we seek... His kingdom first. If we seek from His Word and through His Spirit, we seek the Scriptures. We search through the Scriptures to find what God wants us, how God wants us to behave. If we seek the guidance of His Holy Spirit, Luke's passage says the great gift that He's going to give you is the Holy Spirit. And we seek discernment for godly wisdom to know how to do His will. So we seek first the kingdom of God. We seek and search the scriptures and we seek the wisdom of the spirit. And then we do what Jesus did. The son of man, he said then to to Zacchaeus. Do you remember what he said? At the end of that passage, on the way then to Jerusalem, outside Jericho, after salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house, he says what? You see, my purpose is this. I came, the son of man came to seek... And what? And save the lost. If we seek these things as Gambrel Street, God will show us the way. And then we finally come to knock. If we knock, He will open new doors. We knock, 
and God will open new doors of opportunity. We knock and He will expand our vision for what He expects us to do next. If we knock, the warning is this. If we knock and we ask the Lord to open new doors of opportunity, we better be ready to do what? We better be ready to walk through the door. We are going to be praying that God will open new doors of opportunity this next year. And when He opens them, we need to be poised. We need to be in the front-leaning position, as they say in the military. We need to be leaning forward in the, in the, in the foxhole. For He tells the church at Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works, Philadelphians. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one will shut. The question that we have then, what are the new opportunities that God has for us this next year? Will we knock on the door? And then when He opens that door, are those doors, there will be many, Will we be ready to enter through them? We're going to be talking about that next week. Next week is about some of the things that God may have planned for His vision for us this next year in 2024. So let me close with this application. Ask, seek, and knock means simply this, friend. If you do not know Him, you can. If you simply ask, to know if He exists. You seek to have Him revealed, and you knock, and the door is open so that you can enter God's family. The invitation is open today. Secondly, we ask and we seek and we knock means that we discover God's purpose for us individually as gospel ministers and for Gamble Street Baptist Church as a whole so that we might have and see His vision for what He has planned for you and for His body of Christ on this hill. Both of those things, whether it is a person that is new just coming into the kingdom or one who has been a long-time saint who knows the Lord very well, both of those things require giving ourselves wholly and continuously to God as we walk along life's narrow path, constantly asking and seeking and knocking. And the greatest gift that God has given us is when we respond he lets us return to Him and give back to Him what He has given to us. You see, He invites us to come home and to give ourselves back to Him. We sing our hymn of invitation in the bleak midwinter, and it closes this way. What can I give Him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would give Him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would give Him my part. But what can I give him? I give him my heart. I give him my heart. As you seek the Lord's will, and as you ask for him to provide this next year, and as you individually knock on the doors of opportunity, remember he asks first and foremost that you do what? That you give of yourself, that you give of yourself to the master. How would he have you give yourself to the master today? What is his decision for you as you respond to our invitation as we sing together and as we stand.